The number one reason people walk away from Christianity is the why problem. Some kind of personal experience of unexpected tragedy that leads to despair and eventually disbelief. We recently interviewed a number of former Christians at the National Atheist Convention. And again and again and again, the response for leaving the faith was some personal experience of tragedy or suffering. Steve Jobs, founder of Apple and innovator of the iPhone, grew up in a Christian home. But did you know, at the young age of 13, Steve Jobs left his Christian faith? In 1968, young Steve Jobs noticed shocking photos in a Life magazine article on children starving and suffering in Africa. And he brought that magazine with those photos to his pastor. And guess what? His pastor was unprepared to answer the question. Perhaps you're suffering today. Perhaps you're struggling just to hold on. How can I survive my suffering? Perhaps you've experienced a loss that's caused you to lose all hope. How do we even begin to understand all the promises that God has made to his people? And then we look around and see all the problems God's people experience. Have you ever been so depressed, suffered so much that you wish to die? Did you know that there's a powerful passage in the Bible where one of the strongest followers of Jesus also wished to die. And out of that situation, we get one of the greatest passages and promises in the Bible on deliverance. Even though we're told in scriptures to expect trials, there is a pain tolerance we can develop as God makes it possible for us to encounter and overcome our suffering. And there are remarkable lessons that we can learn. July 30th is a Sunday I'll never forget. Rejoicing after a weekend of services, my phone rang. It was my good friend Marty. I wasn't prepared for what he was going to share with me in the moments that followed. Now, some background's important. When I think about pastoring, there are a few people that I remember who preached me a sermon with their lives that's way more powerful than words could ever be. Marty and his wife Karen came to our church reluctantly at first. There were a lot of people there, we had TV cameras. There were colored lights, but they were attracted to the teaching of the Word of God. Slowly, we got to know one another. We did Bible lands tours together, and Marty and Karen traveled with us to Greece, and then to Turkey, and then to Israel. I developed a very close bond with this family. Marty and Karen have two very talented children. Their son, Anthony, an incredible entrepreneur who co-founded a famous shoe and apparel company in his early 30s. Back to that July 30th phone call. This was just 10 days after I'd met Anthony. Phone rings. Jeremy, this is Marty's voice shaking. Anthony has died. He is with Jesus. Anthony wasn't feeling well after a golf tournament. It was hosted in his honor. He went home and he passed while he was sleeping, just 36 years of age. I was so shocked by Marty's phone call. We had just been with Anthony 10 days beforehand, and now we were planning his funeral services. The thing that I remember about the funeral service was hearing people pray to trust Christ as their Savior all over that auditorium. Many of these people never would have probably been in a church. 
Marty and Karen were grieving, as any parent would. They kept saying something to me that just stuck out. Jeremy, we're going to trust God. You know, it's a parent's worst nightmare to outlive their children. And Marty and Karen, they began to live that nightmare. But the story doesn't stop there. Their suffering didn't end there. While they were grieving for their son, Marty said that he actually began to have blurred vision, double vision, and so he went to a specialist only to find out that now he had a brain tumor. I mean, can you imagine this, losing your own child and then finding out that you or your spouse has a brain tumor? I honestly did my best as a pastor to minister to Marty and Karen, but more than anything else, I just wanted to be present in their life. When people are hurting, we don't necessarily have to say anything. Sometimes it's better not to say anything, but just being present is what people appreciate. Audrey and I spent time with Marty and Karen in two different hospitals in two different states with his brain tumor being operated on. I'll never forget seeing Marty after one of his surgeries. He had a fever. He was there in obvious pain, but he kept saying to me, I'm going to trust God. The good news is, is that God healed Marty's brain tumor, but the sting of losing his child was still there. That will never leave. I remember several moments of grieving with Marty and Karen, but I can honestly tell you I never remember them complaining. I never remember hearing them mistrust God. They just kept trusting Almighty God, even through the loss of a son and a difficult diagnosis. You know what's interesting? Marty and Karen, they don't, they're not ordained. They don't have advanced degrees in theology. They're not in the ministry, and yet they preached my wife and I a powerful sermon with their life example. Have you ever, like Marty and Karen, hurt so deeply that you actually felt like death? Have you ever been so depressed, suffered so much that you actually wish to die? Perhaps you've experienced loss that has actually caused you to just completely lose all hope. Well, did you know that there is a powerful passage in the Bible where one of the strongest followers of Jesus also wished to die? A lot of people miss this passage. It's so important. It comes to us right out of your Bibles. Take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church he founded at Corinth in AD 50. Now, even though this letter is called 2 Corinthians, this is most likely the fourth letter that he sent back to to his church family. Paul spent 18 months preaching in the city of Corinth on his second missionary journey, and you can read all about that in Acts 18. Paul knows these Corinthian Christians well. They are safe. He can be brutally honest with them. What we learn from this fascinating passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is, number one, I can and should be honest about the reality of my suffering and pain. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul gets really honest about all the problems, all the pain, all the suffering, and the experience of evil in his life and ministry. Did you know that 2 Corinthians has actually been called the Job of the New Testament? Paul had so many problems and difficulties that even his critics and opponents actually said that he wasn't really an apostle because it seemed that God had abandoned him. Listen to these words. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. That's 2 Corinthians 1.8. Highlight that in your Bible. I want you to underline that word despaired. It's that wonderful Greek word exoparemai, exoparemai. Do you realize that Paul was saying he had such an experience of grief and suffering and pain that he actually renounces all hope? He literally felt there was no escape. Have you ever been there? 
One translation says that Paul suffered literally beyond his ability to endure. Paul suffered so much that it wasn't just that he couldn't handle it physically. That passage is actually telling us something deeper. From a spiritual standpoint, Paul didn't even understand or begin to comprehend his suffering and difficulty. Have you noticed sometimes when we suffer, it's difficult to even grasp or understand or even explain what we're going through? Suffering is so often unexplainable. Paul doesn't stop there. Keep going in verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Underline that word sentence. It's that interesting Greek word, apokrimai, apokrimai. The word occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. I love Paul's honesty here. It's a secular Greek term that literally refers to a decree or a verdict or a decision that just settles the matter. Paul says that he has literally received this verdict within himself. He's suffering so much on the inside that he feels like he's literally on death row. We can imagine Paul saying something like this to his friends, I'm so overwhelmed, I'm so stressed, I'm so anxious, I literally think I'm going to die. Guess what? Some of you are right there listening to my voice. In the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. He felt this was permanent. His suffering was not going away. And this is a strong point for us as followers of Jesus. Paul did not deny the way he felt. Paul doesn't sugarcoat all of his hardships. And if you're having a bad day, I want to tell you this. On the authority of 2 Corinthians 1, it's okay to talk about it. Paul did. If you're struggling, speak about it. Don't hold that in. God does not want us to deny our emotions. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 7, verse 5, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. I love the old KJV. We were troubled on every side. Without were fightings. Within were fears. Talking about your problems it doesn't mean that you lack faith. Defining the reality of your situation can actually lead to healing. Remember back in verse 8, Paul begins his letter by saying this to the church he founded. These people are special to him. We do not want you to be what? Unaware of all our problems. You might have come from a family where struggles were never discussed. You know, things just kind of swept under the rug. You know, some families suffer because they actually never talk about the problems. They never talk about the suffering, and that's the worst scenario. Or they act as if some tragic event never happened. This happens frequently with families who've experienced a tragic loss like suicide in their family. Not talking about your troubles can lead to so much more heartache. Here's the point. Though Paul defines his reality of suffering, listen closely now, he doesn't live there. I'm of the belief that we can learn from the past, but we don't live there. Notice the rest of the verse. Here's where it gets really powerful. This continues verse 9. Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves. That's that sentence he's talking about. But notice what it goes on to say. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Verse 10, one of the most powerful verses in the New Testament, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. 2 Corinthians 1, 9 and 10. Number two, I come to know God better through my pain and suffering. The wonderful pastor from London, Charles Spurgeon, ministered out of the pain of intense personal suffering. He suffered from gout and other related diseases. 
His wife was an invalid confined to her room during 10 of the most productive years of his ministry. As the pain Spurgeon sat in his wife's room one evening, a log whistled in the fireplace. Gases trapped in the wood were released, causing a brief musical tone. Spurgeon told his wife, Susanna, it takes the fire to bring out the music. Only when our circumstances exceed our ability to handle them do we really, truly, experientially know what it is to depend only on God. You know, sometimes we rely on ourselves much more than God. Have you noticed that if we got really honest? It's as if we say, you know, God, you can take some time off. I've got this. I can handle this. I'm strong enough or smart enough for this. We've come a long way in our Christian lives when we learn to put faith in God alone and not in ourselves or our abilities. There's a reason in another passage of Paul, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says we're to live every day as a living sacrifice. But have you noticed how so often we want to crawl off the altar of being a living sacrifice, if we got really honest? The Christian journey is not a life free from the storms of life, just because we become followers of Jesus. True faith, the Bible tells us, is never surprised by adversity. Number three, my response to suffering determines my future. You know, the syntax of verse 9 is very important, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We learn from Paul that his suffering was actually part of God's plan. There was a divine purpose in his suffering. Notice Paul says the negative first, quote, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but then he gives us the positive, but in God who raises the dead. Paul's suffering literally took him to the brink. And this is the brink that we all need to get to. Paul was so talented. He was educated. He was wise. He was articulate. He knew the word of God. He had ability and stamina and strength. And yet, what did God do? God stripped him down. And he took away every trace of confidence that Paul might have had in himself. And Paul got to that point of utter dependence on God, a God who he says, quote, raises the dead. Here's the key point. When I rely on myself, when I rely on my wisdom or my strength, I cannot fully rely on God. Johnny Erickson Tata, that incredible Christian author and singer who is also a quadriplegic, said this about suffering, quote, It's a glorious thing to know that your Father God makes no mistakes in directing or permitting that which crosses the paths of your life. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter it is our glory to trust Him no matter what, end quote. My message for you today is that God makes it possible for us to encounter and overcome our suffering. He makes it possible for us to gain advantages through suffering. God makes it possible for us to have a complete and purposeful Christian life. I love how Paul sums up his belief in God by saying he trusts in a God who raises the dead. That was Paul's theology in a sentence. Paul describes God in two important ways for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 4 first. Paul describes God as a one who comforts us. And then secondly, look at verse 9. He is a God who raises the dead. For Paul, that was all he needed. God will comfort me. He will stand with me in this trial, and he will work miracles. I stand on God's promises more firmly when I know I can't stand on my own. We serve a God who comforts. And second, we serve a God who raises the dead. He will deliver us. So we must remember God is never the cause or the agent of suffering. Suffering, though, does not supersede God's plan for our life. 
I will keep suffering, God will keep delivering. 2 Corinthians 1.10, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. He'll just keep delivering us. Have you noticed that when God delivers us, He rescues us from some great problem or difficulty in our life, we gain more confidence that God will rescue us again? I mean, it seems logical, but we see it happen and work itself out in our own lives. This is why I love to be around other older, more mature Christians. They're so encouraging when problems happen. They've seen this before, and they know we serve a God who will deliver. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. This wasn't Paul's first bout with suffering, and it won't be his last, but he knows that God will keep delivering him. I love that passage, he has delivered, he will deliver, he will deliver yet again. It doesn't matter which direction Paul looked in his life, if he looked back, God was there delivering. If he looked around in his present difficulties, God was there delivering. And if he looked to the future of his life, he knew that God would be there to deliver him. It's powerful. Is this your testimony today? Get your eyes off all your problems and put your eyes on God who is right there delivering you. Paul saw God's hand of grace and his saving presence everywhere in his life. Does this mean that God will always deliver us in the same way? No. Sometimes God delivers us out of suffering, and other times He delivers us through our suffering. God delivers in different ways. Our job is always to trust Him. As a Bible scholar, I can confidently say that when evil and suffering and tragedy are discussed throughout the New Testament, the emphasis is not on the cause of the suffering, nor is it on some kind of miraculous escape from suffering. Instead, the New Testament affirms the presence of Jesus in a crisis— what we can learn, who we can become, and how one should respond. There is always a purpose in my suffering. Number four, I do not suffer in vain. God's plan and blessings are not canceled by my trials. Look at verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Paul was never afraid to ask his friends and his churches for prayer. Have you noticed that? In nearly all of his letters, Paul specifically discusses his immediate need for their prayers. I think of Romans 15, 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And in verse 11, he speaks of the partnership he and the Corinthians have. They can both pray, they can give thanks for one another. Notice they're to pray, watch God deliver, and then glorify God for that deliverance. Do you remember the book of James? It tells us that we are to expect trials. It tells us that suffering actually validates our faith. Trials is a very interesting word in the book of James. It's the Greek word parasmos. Our English word piracy actually comes from this Greek word. Trials are like pirates that invade our lives. It's not if, but when we fall into various trials. The believer who expects their Christian life to be easy is in for quite a shock. It's interesting that the verse that all believers quote about gaining wisdom, James 1-5, if a man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, it's immediately preceded by the promise that trials of various kinds will come. And remember what the attitude we're supposed to have, count it all joy when those trials come like pirates in our lives. The question of suffering and pain cannot be answered in 140 characters or less. Sorry, Twitter. 
The problem is that we live in a society that more and more prefers sound bites over substance. A substantial question like this deserves a substantial answer. Never forget God is trustworthy. Jesus never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And the cross is the greatest reminder of God's good news and His love for you and me. He knows. He cares. He is with us in the midst of our trials. The resurrection of Jesus promises that not only will our bodies be resurrected, but also the cosmos, the world around us, will be recreated. All that's wrong will be made right. God is not finished. He sees the end from the beginning, and He's now working to rescue us from this present evil age. We can be like Marty and Karen, and we can just keep trusting God.